Well, good morning, Crossing Church. How are you doing this fine day? You doing all right? It's a good day. It's been a good weekend. Allison and I led our third marriage retreat uh, the last two days, and uh, God's doing great work there. Uh, the one before that, there was a couple that were, they, they, uh, were in the front table, and uh, uh, he kept coming up to me after sessions and was going, that, that, that was just really, and just really being appreciative of uh, what he was hearing. And uh, uh, someone took me aside and said, that couple, she's a believer, he's not a believer. And uh, he's uh, being baptized this week at Pike County. So praise God for that. You know, that's, uh, it's just good that uh, God has this ability to do these incredible things. And he does it on his own. And we get to walk with him and we get to experience it along with him. But to see the Holy Spirit work, to see God work in such profound ways. So thankful for that. And I hope that you are experiencing that in your life. I want to welcome all the campuses that are joining with us from all over this region. So thankful for each and every one of you. If you're inside or online, we're thankful for you as well. I'm going to do something I don't usually do, haven't done for a long time, uh, but I want to remind you of a song, um, very old song. Some of you may remember this song. Were you there when they crucified my Lord? You know this song? Were you there when they crucified my Lord, oh, sometimes it causes me to tremble, tremble, tremble. Were you there when they crucified my Lord? You know, that song was sung decades before it was ever written down in notes and words. That was done in 1899, but it goes all the way back to maybe the 1810s, 1820s. It was an African-American spiritual. It was, it was the first spiritual that was printed in hymn books for American churchgoers uh, to sing in church and in worship. And there's only one line in that, uh, in that song that changes with its four verses. But what it actually does is it conveys this emotion. It's a powerful song. I don't know what it is about the way that the, the, uh, the music is structured with the lyrics, but it conveys this emotion, this understanding of suffering and being connected to that suffering. And that makes sense because as an African-American spiritual that was shared and handed down as people were singing it, they would understand that in enslavement, they would understand suffering because while they could not be eyewitnesses to what happened to Jesus, let's say ask the question, were you there? They weren't there. We weren't there. But they were connected with the suffering and there would be a deeper understanding suffering to suffering, a proximity to it that, uh, of what Jesus had actually done for them. And I want to think about that because 
where we are in the book of John is in the passion of Jesus. And what Jesus did when he went to the cross, died for our sins. And of all of the writers of the Gospels, only John could claim to have personally experienced all that happened to Jesus when he went to that cross. Because John was there. I mean, he could sing that song, that African-American spiritual with authority, because he was there. He was there with the rest of the apostles when Jesus prayed in the garden. But when Jesus was arrested, John stood alone among the twelve. He was the only one that witnessed the full impact of what happened to his best friend. You know, it's one thing, and I want you to think about this. It's, only, it's one thing to hear about something that took place and to try to feel that emotion vicariously, but it's quite another when you are immersed in it yourself. And while all the other disciples could give an account of their time in the Garden of Gethsemane because they were all there, only Peter and John would know what it was like to follow Jesus when he was bound and taken to the house of the high priest Caiaphas. And then Peter would deny Jesus and he would run away. And so it was John and John alone that endured the rest. Seeing Jesus beaten at the high priest's house. Being blindfolded and mocked and humiliated. You know, prophesy uh, who, who hits you in the face. It would have been John that would have followed him to the Roman authorities. Who would have seen him scourged, beaten with a cat of nine tails, the 39 lashes. Would have heard his anguish, would have witnessed his pain, would have seen him humiliated, heard the mob's bloodlust for his death by crucifixion. He would have watched Pilate when he washed his hands and said he was innocent of Jesus' blood. He would have walked behind Jesus as he carried his cross. He would have seen his best friend, his Savior, being held down to those pieces of wood and having his body nailed to that wood. He would have heard the agony of it, that he would have experienced the spattered blood, his body being stripped naked and being laid bare in front of everyone else. The insults he would have heard, the anguish of Jesus' mother because he was right there holding her. The pain-filled words that Jesus shared from the cross, all of it. And that is why when we come to the book of John, and we come to this particular part of the book of John, we have to listen to him. And like the song asks the question, John makes the statement. He was there when they crucified his Lord. He was there in the sweat and the spit and the blood. He was there in all those screams of pain and the wrenching anguish and the relentless cursing. He was there when the sun went out and they were all subjected to darkness. He was there in the hopelessness and in the despair and in the defeat. He was there pushing back his own fear, his instincts for fight or flight, his own personal trauma. And in all of this, 
What does John choose to see? What does his gospel reflect? Maybe we need to step back out of that drama for just a moment and understand a little bit more about the gospel of John. So the gospel of John was written between 90 and 100 AD. And John is about the same age as that time frame. So he's probably in his late 80s, his early 90s. A very old man when he wrote the Gospel of John. So it, it's showing you not just the event that happened, but you're getting a flavor of how John was processing it through his entire life and all of his experiences, like what he had seen on that day. And you have to know that by this late, he has read the other Gospels. He's read Matthew, Mark, and Luke. But he doesn't rely on them for his Gospel. Somewhat like Solomon in Ecclesiastes, he sees his life, John does, as more of a whole. Because he's at the end of his life and he's drawing conclusions from that. But Unlike Solomon, you remember Solomon was like, everything is meaningless because he was looking back on his life and he wasn't seeing any value to his life. And here John writing the book of John is looking back on his life. But unlike Solomon, he doesn't see his life as meaningless. And instead he sees Jesus as this Messiah. He sees life as precious and purposeful because of what Jesus has done, what he has accomplished. And so as we go through this passage of Scripture, I want you to see what John sees. Jesus the Messiah. And the first place we see it is in Jesus' prayer in Gethsemane. You know, when we read about John, John was always close to Jesus. He was always sitting next to Jesus. He was right by Jesus. There was always that proximity. And so he was able to hear what Jesus was praying. And so Jesus' prayer in John 17 is a reflection of that, that John was actually hearing that with his own ears while the others were sleeping, if you might recall. And what we see in this prayer in John 17 is Jesus being our high priest. He's being our advocate, our defense lawyer before Heavenly Father. And where he begins this prayer is in praying for himself. Jesus prays for himself. Look at 17 verses 1 to 5. After Jesus said this, he looked toward heaven and prayed, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son. This is very interesting because he's talking about his crucifixion and he uses that word to describe it. Glorification. Glorify your Son that your Son may glorify you. For you granted Him authority over all people, that He might give eternal life to all those you have given Him. Now this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. Glorify me. Lift me up. He is giving himself over to the Father. This is not Jesus praying that God would take this away from him. This is Jesus saying, use this to its fullest extent to impact the world. Use me, Father. Empower me in this way. 
He is praying as the sacrifice. And I love that because he's the high priest and the sacrifice at the same time. He moves from praying for himself to praying for his disciples. We read that in John 17 a little later. It says, I have revealed you to those whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours. You gave them to me and they have obeyed your word. I will remain in the world no longer but they are still in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, protect them by the power of your name, the name you gave me, so that they may be one, even as we are one. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. That's a definition. We'll need that later on in this sermon. As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. You see, he knows that even though the group of people that he's impacted with his personal words is only so big, he knows that those disciples are going to go out and they're going to change the world. That the whole world is going to hear about him through their message. He thanks God that he's set those people aside for that purpose and he's praying that they be empowered to take a message the message of the gospel, which is he is in the process of completing through his death, burial, and resurrection and take it out to a world that so desperately needs hope. And then he moves to you and to me. He prays for us. John 17, 20 to 23. My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. That all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me that they may be one even as we are one. I in them and you in me so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you've sent me. And have loved them, even as you've loved me. See, this is Jesus being the good shepherd. He's holding us together. That's what a shepherd does, right? He keeps the flock together. He keeps them from wandering and straying. He wants them to be one. And you know what? for what purpose? So that he can bring us home. He'll bring us all home together. What does this prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane show us? Jesus, the Messiah. John looks back, remembers that prayer, and says, he's the Messiah. Can't you see what I see? He moves forward from the Garden. Because we can also see this reality in Jesus' arrest, and his trials, and in his beating. See, John remind us, reminds us in his uh, narrative that Jesus never has stopped being who he is. He is still God in the flesh. He is still this all-powerful being who is submitting himself to this. And that never changes through this whole narrative. It never changes. He never becomes less than that. Look at John 18, 4-9. Jesus, knowing all that was going to happen to him because he is God, went out and asked them, Who is it you want? See, this is a mob of 
uh, soldiers and Judas is leading them to arrest Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. And Jesus says these words, I am he. That's me. Only he doesn't go, that's me. He uses these two words. Those are profound words in the Bible. I am. Jesus said, and Judas the traitor was standing there with them. When Jesus said, I am he, look what happened. They drew back and fell to the ground. Really? If I said, I am he, what would you do? Okay, well then, put your hands behind your back, we're going to... No, they draw back and fall to the ground because he's using those two words. And it has that kind of power, creates that kind of blowback. And again, he asked them, can you see, can you imagine in your mind, can you see them like, why did I fall back? Like what... What blew me over, and, and they're trying to get back to their feet and get their swords re-situated and, and kind of, you know, their armor back and wondering what happened to them. And, and Jesus says, who is it you want? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth, they said. And he answered, I told you that I am he. If you are looking for me, then let these men go. This happens so that the words he had spoken would be fulfilled. I have not lost one of those you gave me. Jesus was, is, and always will be the great I Am. That name of God, Jehovah, Yahweh, incarnate in the flesh. And he makes that very, very clear to those people in that garden. And it shows you the power he had over that moment. He didn't have to go through any of this. But he chose to do it. He willingly did it. Because of how much he loves us. But Jesus did not hesitate to make his innocence clear. Look at John 18, 19 to 24. Meanwhile, the high priest questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. I have spoken openly to the world, Jesus replied. I've always taught in the synagogues or at the temple where all the Jews come together. I've said nothing in secret. If I said something wrong, Jesus replied... Testify to what is wrong. Tell me what I've said that's wrong. But if I spoke the truth, why did you strike me? Then Annas, who was the former high priest, sent him bound to Caiaphas, the present high priest, uh, to that high priest. So Jesus makes no bones about it, that, that he hasn't done anything wrong, and they know that. They just want to get rid of him because they see him as such a threat. And then Jesus is taken to Caiaphas and then he's taken to Pontius Pilate. And John records the discussion between Jesus and Pontius Pilate. And he explains the kingdom of God to a pagan. Look at John 18, 35b and following. Your own people and chief priests hand you over to me. This is what Pilate said. What is it you've done? Jesus said... My kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders. But now my kingdom is from another place. Oh, you are a king then, Pilate, said Pilate. Jesus answered, you say that I'm a king. In fact, 
The reason I was born and came into the world is to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. And then Pilate responds with those three words. What is truth? Retorted Pilate. With this he went out again to the Jews, gathered there and said, I find no basis for a charge against him. But it is your custom for me to release to you one prisoner at the time of the Passover. Do you want me to release the king of the Jews? And they shouted back, no, not him. Give us Barabbas. What is truth? We have a whole generation, a whole culture today in America that reflects those very same words. Truth is whatever you want it to be. Truth is relative. Truth moves. My truth and your truth don't have to be the same truth. We live in a post-truth culture. Well, that's what pagans believe. Whatever fits me at any particular time. But the truth is, and as, as the truth was. Because the truth was, that truth was standing right in front of Pontius Pilate. The embodiment of it. And the truth is today, that the truth is standing right in front of you. Because Jesus is in this room. He's in, in every one of these rooms. Where we're worshiping right now. And he stands before you. And you don't have to ask the question, what is truth? Maybe you could answer, ask this question. Who is truth? And hear Jesus' words from John 14 saying, I am the truth. He's the Messiah. We see it in Jesus' crucifixion because now the scene that John relates to us turns deadly. John 19, 1-3 then Pilate took Jesus and had him flogged. That's the, that's the scourge. And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and they put it on his head. And they clothed him in a purple robe. And they went up to him again and again saying, Hail, King of the Jews! And they slapped him in the face. Hmm. See, John writes those words and you know what he's thinking? He's thinking, that was my beating, Jesus, that you took for me. That was my humiliation. But I say the same thing. I read John's words and I say, Jesus, that was my beating. That was my humiliation. The sentence that was pronounced on you, that was my sentence. That you're taking for me. Because he's the Messiah. And now John writes the words of that once and for all sacrifice in John 19, starting in verse 17. Carrying his own cross, he went out, out to the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. And there they crucified him. And with him two others, one on each side, and Jesus in the middle. And near the cross of Jesus stood his mother, his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother there, and the disciple whom he loved, that's John, standing nearby, he said to her, Woman, here is your son. And to the disciple, here is your mother. And from that time on, this disciple, John, 
took her, Mary, into his home. John was there. He was there. And what did he see? The same thing that he saw reflecting in his mind and in his heart six decades later. As an old man, he saw the Messiah. And when Jesus said, it is finished from the cross, it was. It was finished. And I would imagine all of those thoughts and memories and, and illustrations and word pictures flooding into John's mind. That he finished it all. When he died on the cross. He was there for all of it. But I wasn't there. And you weren't there. And I don't wish I was there. Do you? Do you wish you could have been there to see that? I would have wanted to be as far away from that as possible. Now when I think about it's funny to me, but... I, there are times I'm reading God's Word and I was, I'm thinking to myself, oh, I really wish I was there. But the things that I w- wish I was there for are all the good things. I want to I be there for the good ones. I want to be there for the ones that with, without all the fear and without all the stress, and without all the pain. But if I were there, if I would have been there, which part in the story would I have played? Well, honestly, I don't think I would have been there. I wouldn't have been at the cross. I wouldn't have heard what Jesus said. I wouldn't have have experienced with my senses what was happening. I don't know what would have kept me away. It, It might have been like the majority of the apostles who just scattered when Jesus was arrested in the garden and just ran away. Because... Would you agree with me, honestly, that there are times when it's just easier to run? It's just easier to avoid the stress and the pressure. Times when I'll say inside my head, I just need to take care of me. I need to regroup. I need to think this through. And then later on, when things are settled, maybe then I'll come back when things get more comfortable. I might have been like that. I don't think I would have been there, and you know why? I might have been like Peter. Maybe I would have stepped a little further into the danger, only to fold up when somebody points the finger directly at me, like they did to him. And in that moment, I would actually realize, like Peter did, how flawed my faith is, how shallow it can be, given the right set of circumstances or temptations. And in those moments, I start to hate what I learn about myself. And I begin to question, like you begin to question, is my faith even real at all? Or, God forbid, I might think I know better than Jesus does. And I attempt to bend his will to my will. If he would only do what I tell him to do, we would all be better off. In those prideful times, 
I really look more like Judas than anybody else. I get so caught up in my own ego that I can't, couldn't see the big picture if it were hung around my neck. You know, when I read the narrative that John writes for us, I don't think that he portrays himself as a hero. Not in this gospel. And if anyone would see him in any light that way, it would just be because of this. He just didn't lead. And that's a lot more than we may think. Jesus could see him from the cross while he's dying, holding on to his mother. He could speak to him and be heard by him even while he was in agony. Jesus knew that he wasn't alone. His friend was there. When all, everyone else abandoned him, his friend was there. And maybe that is the most powerful thing we can do when we walk in faith with Jesus. To refuse to walk away. Even when it doesn't make sense. Even when it hurts. Even when I'm confused. Even when I'm discouraged. Even when I feel like I'm alone. I just don't walk away. Even when it gets hard. When I don't have all the answers. When it looks like everything is upside down. When our feelings and our temptations get the best of us. To just hang in there. Because that is what friends do. And that is what Jesus did for me. And that is what Jesus did for you. Literally. He hung in there. In that space between worlds. Where he bore our sins where he endured the rejection of God because of the sin that he bore. And that makes him, whether I recognize it or not, whether I live according to it or not, it makes him my best friend. Even when sometimes I'm a pretty poor friend to him. I want you to be thinking today, all of our locations as we spend time thinking about Thanksgiving and thinking about the birth of the Lord Jesus that we remember that that all led to a cross so that he could be what John is sharing with you today the Messiah your Messiah would you think about that as we move to a time of decision? So I want to encourage you today to think about this reality. To look back at that question, were you there when they crucified my Lord? Were you there when they nailed him to the tree? Were you were you there when the sun refused to shine? Were you there when they laid him in the tomb? I want you to think about that in your heart, in your mind. Because we weren't there. But I wonder 
if the reality, the truth of that story, and how it affects you across two millennia, I wonder if in this moment, it might cause you to tremble. To tremble. To tremble. Some of you in this room have never come into an intimate personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Maybe you've attended church for a long time. Maybe you're related to people that have been committed to the Lord. But for you, it's been more tradition than relationship. More rules than relationship. And I wonder if in this moment, the fact that Jesus is real, that He's here, that what He did actually happened, and that He did it for you, He prayed for you, in the garden. He was arrested for you. He's beaten for you. He's crucified for you. He died on that cross in agony for you. If maybe for the first time it becomes personal and it causes you to tremble. Maybe to the point where you would walk up to the front of this church over by the baptistry right there where someone will be standing and say, it's just no good anymore to, to just know the story. He has to be my Savior. I want to step in to that reality. Because someday, if you do that, you will be there. Not where they crucified my Lord. But where he sits on his throne. And where he looks at you with familiar eyes and recognizes you. And maybe points you out and says, I know you. I know you. Do you make that decision today if you've never made it? And many of you here today have made that decision. And you know we're just right here on the front edge, the cusp of this crazy season of the year. For some of us, it's heartbreaking. For some of us, it's, it's incredible. And the distractions are overwhelming. And in the midst of all the stuff that's happening all around us and in our homes and with our families and in our relationships and our communities, that we would just say, Lord, I want to be there. I want to live in this moment with you. And I'm going to invite you to come up and get down on your knees up here at these steps and just commit your way to the Lord. Just spend some time with Him. You know, in the garden, they all fell asleep. While He was begging them to pray with Him. Watch with me. And you can just kind of be here. But you could say, you know, Lord, 
I'm going to live in this moment. I'm going to be here, right? I want you to see that I'm right here with you in this moment. And you can come up here, get down on your knees, and spend some time with the one who went far further than his knees for you. Would you stand with me? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, in Jesus' name, this moment, as every moment, belongs to you. But we pray, Father, that we would relinquish any illusion of control and let you reign in our hearts in this moment as we respond to you, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, even while you're bleeding, even while you're dying, even when you're in agony, no less the King, glorified before your heavenly Father, lifted up to draw all of us to the foot of your cross. In Jesus' name, amen.